going to go to Galatians chapter 3 this morning. Uh, Galatians chapter 3. We've been working through the book of Galatians uh, this new year, uh, verse by verse, just learning more and more about the gospel and what it is, what it means for our lives. And uh, today we're going to do that again. Um, and so hopefully you're starting to hear some repetitive themes throughout these weeks as uh, Paul is building up this argument and this understanding of what the gospel means for us as believers. And so we're going to dive into that today in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29, second half of the chapter, as Paul starts to lay out this story of what I just called the ancient gospel, the one that has always been there. Uh, whether we saw it or knew it or not, God had it in place, and we're going to see that through Paul's uh, letter today. So as I was thinking about this, you know, the, the works of men um, rarely have purpose beyond our own lifetimes. Like it's kind of a sad reality to say, but when we really look at it, the people of this earth, most of them will not know our names, more or less anything that we did or accomplished within 60 years of our death. Just to kind of illustrate that this morning, let's just do a quick show of hands. How many of you know the name of your grandfather? Put your hands up if you know the name of your grandfather. How many of you, keep them up if you know the name of your great-grandfather? Keep them up if you know the name of your great-great-grandfather. Right? A few, not many. Our own families don't know our names within two to three, four generations. And so all the stuff that we do, all the work that we do, all of the accomplishments, all of the busyness, all of the worry that we have, all the things that we're so invested in day in and day out on this earth, Ultimately, when we're gone, what's the point? What's the point of this life if all of it's forgotten the moment that we're in the ground? It brings us to this reality that our lives truly only have purpose if we find that purpose beyond this world. If it's only in the things of this world, it's going to be short-lived. Thankfully, the Lord points us to and he gives us opportunity to step into an eternal purpose that will outlive us and anything to do with us, but we can be a part of that and our lives can have greater meaning because of it. And Paul points that, us to that this morning in this passage, to this ancient gospel, this plan that God had set up from the beginning of time to give us meaning and purpose well beyond our days on this earth. And so that's what we're going to look at today is that God's promise gives my life eternal purpose. God's promise gives my life eternal purpose. So with that in mind, go ahead and look at verse 15 with me and let's dive in. It says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So the first thing that we see here as Paul starts to lay out this story is the promise established. 
The promise of God was established specifically through covenant that he made with Abraham. Now, Paul starts off with an illustration. He says, to give you a man-made example, uh, or or a human example, he says, let's look at a man-made covenant, right? Now, when he's using the word covenant here, we don't really do covenants so much today in our society, but like today would be like the equivalent of like a will. Like if you're going to leave a will for what needed to happen after you passed away. Or maybe even more so, like an irrevocable trust, which is stronger than a will, right? Because he says here that a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Meaning it's a binding document. Once it's signed and sealed, that's it. It cannot be changed. Um, My wife, her father, Homer, passed away a few years ago. But before that, a few years prior to that, he set up a trust to handle all of his estate as he was aging and heading in that direction. But he set up an irrevocable trust. And we always called it his trust as if he somehow still owned it or it was connected to him. But honestly, once he signed it, once it was legally ratified, he had no power to change it. He had no power to stop it. Once it was in writing, it was a binding document. It was done. No matter what changed, no matter what anybody said. That's what Paul's pointing to here. He says, and so his point is like, if a man-made covenant can be that strong, if it can be that binding, how much more is the covenant of God? That when God says something, when he gives us his word, when he promises that it will come to pass no matter what happens. No one can change it. And so he goes on to say, God gave this covenant, this promise, and it was to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, I'm just going to review that promise for a moment, just kind of make sure we're all on the same page. God, when he came to Abraham, he gave him a three-part, a three-fold promise. He said, I'm going to bless you and make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to multiply your family into this great nation of mine. And then I will thirdly bless all the world through your family, or specifically, to use Paul's language, through your offspring, is how he says it. Right? And so, as we look in Scripture, we find out that this promise that he gave to Abraham actually has a dual fulfillment. It was first true for Abraham's immediate descendants, that his kids would grow up into this family that would have the promised land and be the great nation of Israel. Like, there was a fulfillment that happened to Abraham's immediate descendants. But there was also a second fulfillment that was going to happen to Abraham's long-awaited descendant, singular, the Messiah that was to come through Abraham's family, who we now call Jesus. And so in this dual fulfillment, there was, yes, it had been fulfilled, but there was still more coming. And so Paul goes on, he says, so I'm not referring to the many, I'm not referring to the first fulfillment with all of the people, I'm referring to the one who is Christ. And so his point to them is that this covenant, this promise was still in effect long after Abraham and all of his immediate descendants were gone. Because it wasn't just for them, it was also all the way forward to Christ. And we see this language even back in Genesis. In 17, 7, he says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. 
Like this wasn't just for the immediate, it was forever through Christ to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So now Paul's built up this idea like, hey, okay, so God gave this promise, this covenant to Abraham. It was going to last forever all the way through Christ. And then he says the law came 430 years after that. So he's showing us a sequence here, right? The promise came first. The law came later. Now that 430 years points to the time where Israel was in slavery in Egypt, right? After Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their family, they all end up in Egypt. They get stuck there. They're in slavery for 430 years. And they think that they're in slavery because God has abandoned them, right? That they've lost the covenant. They've lost the promise. Something happened. God's forsaken them. And now they're stuck here in this place until Moses shows up. And he leads them out of Egypt and he delivers them from slavery and they go into the promised land or they head towards the promised land and God gives them the law. And so in their mind, they're like, okay, we lost the previous covenant. That's why we were enslaved. So now, obviously, the law, this is the new thing. This is God's new covenant to us. He's given us this new way to know him and to follow him. And, and this is what we're supposed to do. And so they put all of their eggs in the law basket. Right? They're all in on that. But Paul's explained to him, he's like, no, no, no. The law came after the promise, and it does not annul a previous covenant. He says, because the Israelites were still waiting for Christ to come, because Christ had not yet come and fulfilled the covenant, it's not yet over. It still stands, even through your time of slavery, even through your time of the law, even through all of these things. The covenant is still there he says it does not make the promise void. And so, if inheritance comes by the law, he says, then it's no longer by promise. Again, he's making the same argument he made earlier in the book. It can't be both. Because they're not compatible. It's got to be one or the other. And he says God gave it by promise. That it comes through faith in the promise, not works of the law. And then his kind of primary argument to, to put the, the, the cherry on top of this whole thing is he says that the covenant was ratified by God. In other words, he's saying the promise remains unchanged because God never changes. That the, the promise remains unbroken because God is always faithful. That the promise remains because God remains. It's anchored in, it's built on, its foundation is the character of God himself, and so therefore we can trust that it will always stand. When the promise rests solely on God and his character, then no matter what happens in man's circumstances, it doesn't affect the covenant. It doesn't affect the promise. Last week, Courtney and I were watching this movie um, about fostering and adoption. And in this movie, there's a, there's a couple who's fostering to adopt three kids. One is a teenager, and then there's two younger siblings. But the teenager is giving them all kinds of grief. Right, like she's just really pressing them and she's trying to make it hard and sabotage the whole thing because she wants to go back 
and live with her birth mom. And so throughout the movie, by the end of the movie, it comes out that the birth mom can't, it's not going to work. She can't handle it. She's not like, that's not going to work. And so they end up having to stay with this couple who's going to foster and, and eventually adopt them. And when it all kind of pans out, the teenager comes back to them and says, I'm sorry, I should have done that, da, da, da. Why don't you just keep the younger kids and I'll go somewhere else? I'm almost out of the system anyways. Like, I know I messed this up. I'll just go away and you can, you can just adopt the younger two. And her mindset is, because of what I've done, because of what I've, the circumstances that I've put into this family, you're now going to retract your offer of adoption. Right? You're no longer going to want me. The, the promise that you made to love and adopt, it's no longer good because of what I've done to you. That's her mindset. But the, the parents chase her down, literally physically chase her down, and refuse to let her leave. And they say, no, no, the promise still stands because it never depended on you or what you did. It depended on our love for you. It was rooted in our character, not in you or what you did or didn't do. That's the picture here that Paul's painting of God with the people. Is that God's people, they never lost his promises when they were enslaved in Egypt. They never lost his promises when they rebelled against Moses, God's representative that was coming to take them out. They never lost his promises when they received the law and then failed to obey it over and over and over again. They never lost God's promise of salvation because it never depended on them or their circumstances. It always depended on God's unchanging character. It's who he is. And the same is true for every single one of us today. My circumstances never void God's character. No matter what I do or don't do, no matter what I get myself into, no matter how far I fall, that never voids the character of God and his grace and his love and his offer of forgiveness for those who come. It's by promise, not by the law. So we see the promise given there through covenant, and then we go to the next part. Look at verse 19. It says, why then the law? Paul's going to start asking some questions that he's assuming that his readers are asking. Right? He's going to answer some questions that he thinks, all right, this is what they're going to ask. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through the angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Second thing we see here is this, the promise protected. The promise protected, and interestingly enough, it's actually protected by the law. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. So Paul starts with this first question. He says, why then the law? All right, this is what he thinks they're asking. They're actually saying, if, if the law wasn't a new covenant, if the law wasn't to tell us how to be righteous or how to get to God or how to earn our salvation, if that's not what it was, then why did God give it to us at all? What's the point? And Paul breaks it into three pieces. He says, first of all, 
the law, it was added. Notice that word added is important. He doesn't say it replaced. It added to the promise. He's extending here this imagery of the, of the covenant, of the, the trust, right? That once it's written, it can't be changed. But sometimes you might have an addendum, right? That, that doesn't change the trust, it doesn't change it, but it explains it. It clarifies, hey, this is what it means. This is what the terms mean. This is what it looks like. The law was an addendum to the promise to help supplement and clarify the purpose of the promise in our lives. He says it was added because, here's the reason, of transgressions. God gave the addendum of the law to reveal to us the reality of our sin and our subsequent need for a Savior. Paul goes into much more depth in this in Romans, so I'm going to read a couple verses from there to help you. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 he says, for by works of the law, no human being is will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That was the purpose of the law, was to give us a knowledge of, hey, look, these things are sinful. This is how you're rebelling against a holy God, to open our eyes to the knowledge of sin. Romans 4.15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So if God hadn't given the law, then we would have been continuing to just walk in blissful ignorance of our sin and never seeing that, hey, we need to repent and turn to the Lord. Romans 7, 7, what, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I liken this to, like, for parents, like, with your children, right? Like, especially when they're younger Maybe not so much when they're older, but when they're younger, like when you just, if you just didn't, if they didn't ever talk, if you just like looked at them, they're like, oh, they look so sweet and innocent and they're just, they look so perfect and great. But the moment that we tell them to do something that their heart doesn't want to do, all of a sudden, it just all comes out, right? We wouldn't have known, maybe they wouldn't have even have known. The rebelliousness that was in their heart until we gave them the law, until we gave them the command of, hey, do this or don't do this, it exposed what was already in there that we couldn't see before. That's what the law did. That was the purpose of it. So he says, he added the law because of transgressions, and then he says this, until, so there's a time limit on it, until the offspring should come. So the law was meant to be temporary. It was a temporary holding place until the promise could be received through Jesus Christ. Right? The law is, is the conviction that God gave to ready us for the promised salvation that was to come. It was to get us, it was to get us there. Right? It was the bridge to get us there. Until the offspring, Jesus Christ, should come. So that's the first question. That's why we have the law. And then he goes into kind of an implied question of, okay, then how is the law different from the promise? And he explains it like this. It's kind of a confusing explanation because we don't understand all of the nuance of what he's saying here in the original context. But here's what I think he's saying. It was, he says it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So he's just talking about like the physical way that God got the law to them, right? 
through angels to an intermediary who was Moses, and then Moses delivered it to the people. But then he goes on to say this. He says an intermediary implies more than one. And what he's talking about here is the, the nature of the law. You see, the law is different from the promise because with the law, it always requires two parties. It requires one to do the law, to obey it, and then another to bless in spite of, or in light of that obedience. Or it takes one party to disobey the law and the other party to bring judgment on that law. The law always takes two parties interacting together for it to work. He says intermediary implies more than one. He says, but God is one. And that's his shorthand way of pointing us back to the promise. You see, we know back in Genesis chapter 15 that when God made the covenant with Abraham, when he made the promise, they had a special ceremony they would do to ratify covenants during that day. And he had Abraham set up this whole elaborate ceremony to ratify the covenant between the two of them. And then Abraham falls asleep, and God walks through the covenant ceremony alone to show us that he alone would fulfill the covenants. The covenant is by one. The law is by two. That's Paul's point here. And so, to come along and to add the law to the covenants would be to change the terms of the original covenant from God alone to God plus man to fulfill it. Think of it like a shady contract, right? Like, that you, you sign it thinking it's one thing, and they're like, oh, yeah, here, by the way, here's some fine print that you didn't read before, and now we're going to change the whole deal and make it something different than what it was. If God added the law to the covenant to say, first, hey, I'm going to do it all for you. Don't worry about it. I got this covered. Oh, by the way, you also have to do these things. That would make God a shady con artist trying to give us the old switcheroo. And that's not who God is. That's not his character. And so Paul's point here is that that's not what he did. And so the promise still stands. He goes on, he says, next question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? We kind of touched on this a little bit last week. I heard some rumblings that some of your small groups had some good conversations about this. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He says no, because the law can't give life. It never could give life. Because no one could ever keep the law perfectly. And so if the law had replaced the promise, it would not have been a solution to salvation. It would have been a death trap for all of us. It wouldn't have been grace. It would have been just pure judgment without the promise. He goes on to explain, he says, the scripture, which is just another word for the law here, imprisoned everything under sin. You see, when the law came, it revealed our slavery to sin, that we were already enslaved to our sin and sentenced to death because of it. It says the law imprisoned everything under sin so that, and this is the really, really, really cool part, it says so that, the promise might be given to those who believe. 
You see, the law actually protected us from continuing to live blind to our sin. The law protected Christ's sacrifice on the cross from becoming this frivolous waste because nobody knew that they actually needed it. The law protected God's offer of freedom from sin and death through faith, not works. It protected the promise from falling on deaf ears and from us missing out on God's grace because we didn't even know that we needed it. You see, there can be no grace through faith without awareness of sin through the law. One requires the other. One of the things our girls love to do at night when we're somewhere not in the bright lights of the city is to look up and see the stars in the night sky. But did you know that the stars are actually present in our sky all the time? Not just at night, right? They're there always, 24-7. Only problem is during the day we can't ever see them because the bright light of the sun covers them up, right? It covers and we can't see their light coming through. It requires the, the pitch black night to reveal the presence of the stars. We can only see the light of the stars against that contrasting darkness. Likewise, if all we ever hear is a religion of positive affirmations and good morality and enabling love, if Jesus is just this other guy who comes along to just make our good lives even better, then we won't ever actually need him or see him for who he really is. We can only understand the beauty of the cross and the gloriousness of the gospel and our need for Jesus against the black, dark, pitch contrast of our sin. We have to have that there first. Then we can see the light shining through. Thomas Watson, theologian of the past, said this. He said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. I love that quote. That is why we need God's law, to make sin bitter to us. Because only once people taste the bitterness of their sin will they hunger for the sweetness of the Savior. And so my sin shows me my need for a Savior. That's Paul's point in this section. He's showing us the purpose of the law. It's not to save us. It's to show us that we need to be saved by someone else because we can't do it. And so we have the promise given. We have the promise here protected through the law. And then lastly, look at verse 23. It says, Now... Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in, came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. 
For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Last thing here this morning, the promise fulfilled through faith. That the promise that God made long, long ago, thousands and thousands of years, before any of us ever even were a thought to anyone, is ultimately fulfilled in us, in our lives, in our day, through faith. He says, he says, now before faith came. Now he's using the word faith there almost as a synonym for Jesus, right? Before Jesus came into human history to die on the cross for our sins, before he subsequently came into our hearts through faith in him, before faith came, he says, the, the law was two things. He gives us two pictures here. One, he says, we were held captive and imprisoned by the law. The picture of literally a prison. That we were locked up. We were in custody because we were under condemnation and we were confined by our sin and by the law. And then the second illustration he gives is that we were, that the law was our guardian. Now, guardian has a different connotation for us today. During this time, during the, in the Roman world, households would oftentimes have a guardian in the household, and the guardian's job was to take the children around age five and then raise them to adulthood. The parents didn't really do that. The guardian did that. So the guardian would take the children and raise them up. And they were known to be very strict disciplinarians because it was their job to whip these kids into shape, right? And to show them all their errors and to make them obey and all these kind of things. And so during this stage, the guardian had complete control of the child. The child really almost functioned more like a slave in the household than they did a son or a daughter. And so there was this really kind of interesting relationship that we don't really have a, a, a similar thing for today. But that's what Paul is referring to. And he uses both of these pictures, the prison and the guardian, to show us that the law restricts our freedom. That while we're in sin, the law restricts our freedom to point us to our need for rescue, for pardon. But he says here that that's only happening until the proper time comes. That's why he says, but now faith has come. That now, because Jesus has come into history, because he's come into our hearts through faith, we no longer are under a guardian, he says. That's gone. That's in the past. We have moved from the status of child slash slave to now, he says, to be a son with full family rights. Now, Paul uses the word son here specifically. He purposely didn't say sons and daughters. And he's not doing that just to be chauvinistic, as many in our world today would want to claim. It's actually the opposite of that. See, during this time, women were considered second-class citizens, if you will, and therefore only sons were allowed to have full honor and full inheritance in the family. Only sons got that privileged status. But here, Paul isn't excluding women from that. The society is, but Paul's actually including women because he says, you are all sons 
of God. That all men and women who put their faith in Jesus are brought in to be full heirs with full promise and full inheritance in the family of God. He's giving us all a status here with that title. It's not really about gender. He says we're all sons. We're all heirs to the promise through faith in Christ. And then he says this, we are all sons of God through faith. And just a little side note here, because I think sometimes our vernacular, even in the church today, can be confusing on this. When the Bible talks about those who are sons and daughters of God, it is only those who are through faith. Not all humans are children of God. All humans are made in God's image, yes. All humans are loved by God as his creation, absolutely. But only those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are adopted into the family of God and are sons and daughters to the king. And Paul goes on to explain further what this looks like. He says, furthermore, as many as of you were baptized, baptism is an outward sign of inward faith. Right? Baptism doesn't save you, but when you put your faith in Jesus, you are baptized to show everyone, hey, I'm a follower of Christ. So as many of you as put your faith in Jesus and you were baptized, you have put on Christ. And he's extending here again that picture of the guardian son thing, right? Because when you transition from being that child in, underneath the guardian to being a full adult son, you would take you had a ceremony where you would take off your childhood garments and you would be given a new garment to show your new status as an heir and a son in the family. And that's the picture he's given here, that in baptism, that we are putting on this new garment who is Christ, who covers us and shows that we are now identified with the family of God. Shows that we are now free from condemnation. That we're now free from the control of the law. And we can live in this freedom through the promise of Jesus. He then keeps going. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. He's referring there to the racial and cultural divides during that time. There's, there's, not, there's no slave nor free, referring to the different socioeconomic statuses of the time. He says there is no male nor female, referring to the gender differences that we all are aware of. And there are many in our culture today, in church and outside of church, who want to take those verses and make them something that they're not. Because he tells us what he's talking about in the next line. Look at the scripture. He says, for, all right, all of you grammar people, all right, connecting word there, <laughs> all these things are true, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the point. That we are all, regardless of any of that other stuff, none of that stuff is untrue, none of that stuff necessarily, it doesn't go away, it's not that it's not there, it's just that none of it matters in the sense of Jesus. Because we are all equal in our need for Jesus. We are all equal in our inability to be righteous before God. We are all equally offered salvation through faith. And so we are unified by our identity in Christ. Not in these other things. We are all one together in him through the same promise. Now, 
because some of these things are such hot-button topics right now for us in our culture, I want to give just kind of a side note here, three quick observations about what these things mean and what they don't mean. Okay? Number one, these traits, all these traits he just listed, the gender traits, the socioeconomic traits, the, the racial and cultural traits, these traits are not erased completely, but replaced as primary. That's his point. He's not saying that we don't see these differences or that they don't exist as if they've just been erased from humanity. They have not been erased. They're still part of us, but they're no longer primary in who we are. They're no longer the primary thing that we identify ourselves with or connect with others in. We can appreciate them. In fact, they're actually a beautiful picture of how God can bring unity through the diversity that he has put into his creation. Where everyone else sees it as division, we as believers get to see this as a beautiful tapestry that God's putting together in unity in Christ. So they're not a race, but they're also not primary anymore. Number two, these traits are no longer sinful divisions, but grace-filled distinctions. Again, our world likes to divide over these things and to pit us against one another. But God says, no, 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 these, these are grace-filled distinctions. They are gifts that God has given to us that we all have different backgrounds and different experiences and different roles and different callings and different things that he's put in us that we now get to bring to the body of Christ and use those differences to serve one another well and to love one another. And to grow together. This is the grace of God in our lives that we have these things that we then can bring to serve and help one another. And then lastly, number three, the way of the body is a window for the world. You have to understand when Paul wrote this, he was not writing a social commentary. He was not giving our world a way to work out their, so, their societal differences. He was writing to the church. He was giving instructions to the people of God that this is how we should live. If the world chooses something different, that's not on us. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. Now, we see throughout history, praise the Lord, that as the world looks through the window into Christianity and sees how we're different, that that has impacted the world in so many magnificent ways. And they have taken on so many ideas and morals and laws and, and, and mindsets because they see how true it is in the lives of the church. The church can be a witness to the world in these ways, but it's not our job to change the world or police the world in these ways. It's our job to be this to one another. That's what Paul is saying. And then however far that spreads beyond the walls of the church through God's grace, praise his holy name. But Paul here isn't speaking to that. He's speaking to us. So he says all these things, they're all secondary because we're all one in Christ. And then he ends with this. And he says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs to the promise through faith in Christ, the offspring of Abraham. 
what he just said is that now, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are now a member of the most important family in all of history. That you have a place, you have an identity that will live beyond this life and beyond this world. That we now find ourselves and we find our purpose in Christ and in his eternal family. We finally know where we truly belong. And when we look around our world and our culture today, many would say that this is the worst it's ever been. Have you heard comments like that? I don't know about that. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. I think we have a pretty limited scope and view of world history in many ways. But I will say this. People are more lost and confused and longing to find their place in this world more than ever we've seen in our lifetimes. That's for sure. And I think we see this in the evidence that the suicide rate in the United States has increased 30% in the last 20 years. Because people can't find a purpose in this life. It's even fashionable these days to believe that life has no purpose, that it has no meaning, that, that we all just live out our lives however we want for nothing, and, and there's, we are all searching for somewhere to belong, anywhere to plug in and feel like, man, I have something to, to contribute here. And so many people right now are trying to fix these feelings to, by searching to build an identity that they think is going to finally give them that meaning, give them that community that they're looking for. And so they pour themselves into all the things that Paul just listed, right? Into race and into fame and into social status and into sexuality and into even biological gender. They're looking for somewhere to plug in and feel like, man, I have a purpose here. I have, a, I have somewhere I can belong. But the problem is all of these identities are temporary constructs of this world. And therefore, they are marred by sin, and they're void of any lasting impact or meaning. And that's why most people who throw themselves into these things, they end up finding out on the other side that they're right back where they started. Hopeless, meaningless, nothing to live for. Christ has an answer. And his answer is, come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will give you purpose. I will give you a meaning in your life that you've been looking for. Find your identity in me. Find your purpose in the eternal plan. Find your purpose in the family of God that will last well beyond this day and age. This is what you were made for. This is what God's purpose was. The only place that you will ever find wholeness in your life is in the family of God. Christ offers us this oneness with him and with other believers. 
but it only comes through faith. So through faith, I join God's family and I find my place in his story. That's what we're all searching for. Whether we know it or not, Paul's pointing us back to God's plan. God's promise, he says, gives my life eternal purpose. He's using the truth of the gospel to anchor our hearts and our identities in something greater than this world. He wants us to anchor in the unchangeable character of God. He wants us to anchor our hearts in the gracious provision of a Savior. He wants us to anchor our identities in the adoption that we have in God's family. All of those things will last beyond this life and can give your life eternal purpose. With God, through the ancient gospel, we can join in with this long, long line of believers and be part of an eternal plan. So have you found your place in God's eternal story? Have you found that spot? Through faith in Jesus Christ, has your identity become, I'm a child of God? And that's the most important thing about me. Only then will we have an eternity ahead of us, full of purpose and meaning and glory. That's what we're going for. It's not just here and now. It's way beyond that. Stand with me. Let's pray. Let's respond in song. Heavenly Father, thank you, God. Thank you for the ancient promise that you made to Abraham and the blessing that it is to us. Thank you for sending Christ to fulfill your promise to rescue us from sin and from death and from the law. Thank you for adopting us into your family and filling us, filling our lives with eternal purpose. God, we are here today. Lord, we worship you today. We look forward to the day when it all comes together, when it all comes to completion, and we will be whole with you forever and ever. God, thank you. Thank you for making us your sons and daughters. I pray all of this in the wonderful name of Jesus.